Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 37, to chapter 22, verse 29. Please turn in your Bibles with me and stand as we read God's word. The scripture will also be behind me on the screen. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicily, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with him with his hand to the people. And there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them to the bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all of the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear his voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizen for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Teresa. That is quite the chunk of scripture. She read that well. Good morning. We are, we are in the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for a long time. We'll probably be in there for a little bit longer. Uh, but if you're new, welcome. Um, we go, uh, we speak uh, exegetically here. We, we go expositionally. We go scripture by scripture. And that's what we're doing this morning uh, in this text. Um, so it should take us about three or four hours, but we'll get through it. So no, it, it will be shorter than that. But I, um, as I was approaching this text, uh, again, I was like, okay, this is about Paul. This is significant. Um, but we've heard a lot about Paul, right, in, in Acts. We've seen a lot. And, 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 I, and, I'm, and I'm going, here's another story about Paul doing the hard thing, doing the godly thing. This guy seems just unstoppable, right? Um, he kind of seems like a super Christian, this week, I'm bothered by slow Wi-Fi, fussy kids, comparing myself to other people. And here he is, about to give his testimony to a mob that wants to kill him. I'm like, what? I mean, how, how do we even approach this? Is, is this something that we need to say? I, I, I need to be like Paul in that. Is that the question kind of we're asking? Um, Paul, obviously courageous. He's bold. But am I called to that same level of boldness? Or is this just kind of a narrative that we're, we're hearing about? Are you called to the same amount of courage that Paul is demonstrating here? I think the answer is yes. It's yes. You are, I am. Even if you feel a million miles from this story. I don't know what your week has looked like. We're waiting on a baby. We've got like a couple days left. My mind is in a lot of places. But even if you're a million miles from this story, I believe God wants us to hear this. And I think he wants us to be more strong, more courageous than we think. But how we understand what courage is and where it comes from really matters. So we're going to look at Paul's courage this morning. But specifically the resource that Paul was drawing from for this particular courage. 
Paul's endurance and character are a direct result of his resource. And we're also going to look at the cowardice of the crowd. They didn't want to hear. They only wanted to to believe what they believed. They wanted to preserve themselves or protect themselves from the uncomfortable truth. So I, I don't typically title a message, but this is the title of our message this morning. The Courage of Paul and the Cowardice of the Crowd. And I think... We'll see ourselves and how each one of these, we can, we can actually play a part. We can actually have the courage of Paul if we understand where the courage comes from. But we, there's a little bit of the crowd in us. There's a little bit of the crowd in us. Maybe a lot of it. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, history and context here. Let me nerd out. I'm wearing my glasses this morning, so it's appropriate. Uh, the original manuscripts... Um, were written on scrolls, parchment. This stuff was expensive stuff. The characters were limited. They are, they're only a certain width. They couldn't just go down and get a ream of paper. This was, this was really uh, a specific thing that when Scripture was written down, when they were recording these things, it was, it was limited. And here we have a fully repeated story of Paul's testimony. And then, here in, in just a few other chapters... In, in, in chapter 26, it's repeated again when Paul is before Agrippa. Um, this is unusual to be so repetitive when, when the parchment and the characters are so limited. It seems really unnecessary, doesn't it? He could have just said, and Paul shared his testimony. I wrote about it just a little while ago. He could have said that, but he didn't. So it becomes clear that Luke, uh, who wrote Acts isn't just telling miscellaneous stories of Paul and the church, but he's really honing in to explain Paul's divine calling and the means in which he carries out God's directives. And he does it repeatedly. So when the Bible repeats itself, it's really significant. He, Luke is giving us context on how the gospel is actually spread. It's a big deal. N.T. Wright, he takes this interesting perspective. He, he thinks that, um, that Acts, specifically the, the last eight, chapters were written much earlier than typically um, understood. And he argues that Luke could have been possibly writing this account as these things were unfolding. Like he's writing down, okay, now Paul goes here. This is what was said. This is what was done. And you, you sense that I, the last couple of weeks, as Kyle has talked, the shift in the text is not just uh, them, it's we. Um, Luke includes himself, we, us. And the details have just gotten way more specific. Have you noticed that? The details and acts have gotten way more specific. And we'll, we'll, we'll see that today. But ultimately, Luke is telling us the story of God. So the crowd is angry. Let's, look at, let's um, go back to last week's text, um, chapter 21. I think we have... What was the, the charge against Paul? Why are they so upset? Uh, this is a little hyped up. This is the, the Jews from Asia. They say, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. Always language. A little bit of an exaggeration there. Against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So... The charge against Paul is that Paul is disloyal to the people of God, he's disloyal to the law of God, and he's disloyal to the temple of God. The people are talking. 
people are gossiping. They're telling stories. They're altering the story just a little bit. Just a little bit. We saw this last week with Paul and Trophimus the Ephesian out in the city. And what did it say? They supposed that because he was with Trophimus in the city, he brought Trophimus into the temple, which is a big Jewish no-no, bringing a Gentile into the temple. So what happened is these folks saw Paul and Trophimus having some wings at Wingstop. And they said, they took that little bit of information and turned it into a, a huge deal. Paul not only had wings, but he brought the Ephesian into the temple. They took a really, it's just like a, they made it way bigger than what it was. And that's significant. I told the, the, the first service, I had a little bit of an existential conversation with myself on what type of restaurant Paul would eat at. You know? He kind of seems like a steak and potatoes guy. But if he was dining with a weaker brother, he wouldn't have done that, you know? So chicken kind of seems safe. Chick-fil-A was way too pre- predictable. So we went with Wingstop. Wingstop has great fries. It makes sense. He was sensible. So this is where we find Paul. He's being accused of things he didn't do by a crowd who wants him dead. And he's about to give a defense to the Jews who think he's dismantling their identity. Paul had just recently, in the same, probably the same year, completed his letter to the Romans. If you know, if you've read Romans, it's a pretty significant book. A lot of our theologies jam-packed into Romans. And you would imagine that this was on Paul's mind. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, I think 2,000 years later, we're still trying to unpack what, what that means. But this is the theology that would have been going through his head before a Jewish crowd. And here's, here's a list of some of those things, um, the themes throughout those last three chapters, or those three chapters. God's sovereign choice. This would, this would have been the, Theology that was going through Paul's head. He had just wrote this letter. Israel's unbelief. The message of salvation for all. Really big deal. The remnant of Israel. Gentiles grafted in. I mean, that's huge. The mystery of Israel's salvation. This would have been going on. And and, and you can imagine him going, there's no way I'm going to be able to communicate this stuff. To this angry crowd. There's no way I'm going to be able to communicate this theology. Remember they're raging. This crowd is raging. They're throwing a fit. They want him dead. They're screaming. They're throwing dirt in the air. So picking up in the narrative. The crowd is so loud. That Paul can't even talk to this Roman military leader. The tribune. Um, From our history we know that. This tribune. His name was Claudius Lysias. And the tribune carries Paul back into the barracks so that he can talk. They can't even communicate. These people are pounding on Paul. I mean, it's a, it's, this is a graphic scene. And the tribune breaks through with his soldiers. He probably had about a, a thousand soldiers under his command. And he, and he was in charge of keeping the peace. And this huge commotion is happening. He hears about it. He runs down. And at the center of the commotion is this man. And he's being beaten. And so he essentially rescues Paul from probably certain death, and uh, he brings him into the barracks where we have this kind of confused conversation, right? Kind of seems strange. Um, There had been a recent rebellion 
led by, this is the information we have, the Egyptian. And this Egyptian character had, from what we understand, maybe 4,000 or so men and had camped out on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And he's leading this revolt against uh, the, the Jewish leadership, against Rome. And it's actually... This tribune, Claudius Lysias, and probably with Felix, which we'll learn about later, who went out into, this, into the wilderness and defeated them. They killed about 600 of these um, assassins and scattered the rest. And the Egyptian, the leader, was still at large. So you can imagine this is top of mind for the tribune. And he says, are you the Egyptian? And Paul clarifies Paul speaks in Greek, which is really significant. He indicates that he's a Jew and is from a respectable city and is attempting to be civil and not stir up a crowd, not stir up a riot, and certainly not a revolt. True Christianity does not stir up a riot. That's not the way of Jesus. Paul wants to clarify that here for us. For the tribune. So Paul, he pulls a bit of a move here. Okay? He pulls a bit of a move. He's not a dumb guy. He pulls this language move. And it's hard for us to kind of perceive it. Because we don't see things necessarily in class. But in this time, the social stratosphere uh, was marked with classism. uh, Hierarchy. And uh, how you typically understand class or how you perceive class is often in how someone's dressed. But it, but it also has to do with the language they speak and specifically the dialect that they use. So Paul pulls a little bit of a language move here. He speaks in a specific formal dialect of Greek. Turns to the tribune, speak to him, speaks to him and he communicates that he's educated. He comes from an influential background and upbringing. He probably looked like a man of the rabble. Paul, at this point, he was just beaten. But his language told a different story. And in turn, the tribune goes, yeah, you can speak to this crowd, which is probably unprecedented. But because of that social stratosphere, he was able to communicate something and yet again leverage the moment for the gospel of Jesus. He then motions to the crowd. I don't know what emotions, but I imagine if a crowd is screaming for your death, just going like this, it's not going to get them to shut up. Uh, so he, he, what, we, what we understand is that it was probably some sort of orders. I don't know what it is, but it was some sort of signal that communicated that Paul was an experienced, practiced public speaker. Public speaking was the media of this day. Okay, It's kind of lost on us, but public speaking was the media of this day. Um, I read this week that Paul was, uh, he was showing his media savviness. Uh, Religion, philosophy, the news, everything would come to the people through a public speaker. They They would have understood what was about to take place. And when he did that, it said, what happened? The crowd hushed, which was really good for Paul to be able to talk. Um, And so he gets their attention. He then switches his language. 
he speaks uh, in the Hebrew language, not actually in Hebrew, but he speaks the common language, Aramaic. Um, Aramaic would have been the, the common language of all Jews at this time, okay? So the Jews are scattered all over the region. They're coming to Jerusalem. This got everyone's attention. He spoke in their common language. Everyone was understanding. All the Jews were understanding Paul. And it says the crowd went really quiet. Like, okay, you got our attention. So why is Paul, with this opportunity, going to share his testimony? Why not, the, why not the theology that they needed? I believe it's this, because his testimony is the gospel. And it's this picture of Jesus coming to us in the middle of our sin and our ignorance. Jesus came to Paul in the middle of that story, right? On the road to Damascus when he was going to murder, imprison Christian people. Jesus enters the scene and pursues Paul. Paul's attempting to give a defense, but ultimately point the crowd to the truth of Jesus and his saving work. It's a very intimidating crowd, though. If the, if the Tribune hadn't have intervened, Paul would have probably been stoned to death. But he has this opportunity. And what do we see from Paul? Courage. Ridiculous courage. I want that courage. Do you want that courage? This type of courage? I want that resolve. But where, where does it come from? Was Paul just like a super confident guy? Is that what we see this text teaching us and Acts teaching us? That if you are kind of type A and really confident, God will use you? I don't think so. On the road to Damascus, Paul met the person of Jesus. And Jesus captivated Paul's heart, his mind, everything about Paul, Jesus captivated. And you can see it with the rest of his life. That's what the gospel will do if we let it. The gospel is Paul's message, but it's also his source. That's what he's drawing from. We talk a lot about the gospel here. We say that, that phrase a lot. Um, I, I felt like this was a helpful quote. This is from James K.A. Smith on the gospel. The truth of the gospel is less a message to be taught than a mystery enacted. It is a truth and it is a doctrine, but it's something that you see enacted. It's not static. We, we far too often think of the gospel as only a doctrine to be believed and miss out on its power to animate every single ounce of our living. The gospel is not a static truth, but a dynamic expression of God's strategy for every single breath that you take, that I take. I want to say that again. The gospel is not a static truth, but a dynamic expression of God's strategy for every single breath that you take. God chose you for the foundations of the world were created and the gospel is the good news that the rescuer has come 
and he's making all things new. The kingdom has come with him. He's ushered in a new way. Even when you and I were messing things up, which we still do, even when you and I hurt people and have hurt people, when we misuse our bodies, when we destroy beauty he created, he sent Jesus who willingly took the blame for us and was killed but rose again and murdered sin and death once and for all. He did this so you and I could be free. He did it so we could be free. That's why he did this. But free from what? What did he free you from? What did he free me from? From sin? For sure. But you know what he also did? He, he freed you from yourself. The constant need to prove yourself, justify yourself. The gospel frees you from pride and ego. You, ego, you, you no longer have to be exhausted by the shame-filled endeavor of self-centeredness. Can I get an amen for that? It's exhausting. You know why it's exhausting? Self-centeredness is because you always let you down. I always let me down. When it, when it finally plays out, it doesn't add up. So how does it do this? The gospel does this in two ways. It takes you down. The gospel takes me down. And then secondly, it lifts you up. It lifts me up. It takes you to the ground because it tells you who you really are, right? This is what the gospel says. If, 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 you, if you see the scriptures, think of the worst person who you can imagine. It's kind of different for all of us. Think about the, the worst. Okay, you have it in your mind? I know this is kind of heavy, but think about it. The gospel says you have the same pride. You have the same deceitfulness, the same self-centeredness as that person. That sounds harsh, right? But James 2.10 says this, forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. If you, if you, if you miss it by one, you're guilty of it all. Okay, if that doesn't land, um, I give you a glass of water and I fill it half with water and half with sewage. Would you drink it? No, you would not drink that water. However, if I give you a glass of water and I fill it 99% with water, but just 1% with sewage, would you drink it? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think so. You would not drink it because there's still sewage in your water and it, and it permeates everything. That's what sin does. Sin permeates everything. So there might be degrees of consequence this side of heaven for a, a specific sin or wickedness. But there are not degrees in what God demands. God demands perfection. And that's Jesus. So the gospel takes you down and then it says you're way worse than you think you are. On the other hand, the gospel lifts you up. The gospel lifts you up to the heavens, in fact. You're loved. You're chosen. You're pleasing to God because of what Jesus did. 
You're a delight to God because you now are adorned with the righteous robe of Christ. It says that the very heart of God is pleased with you. Can you just let that sink in? God just loves you. His heart loves you. It's for you. And his opinion is the only opinion in the universe that actually matters. When you understand that, all the needs of your heart, all the needs of your ego, all of your desires are met and completely satisfied. You no longer have to be consumed with thinking of yourself. Isn't that good news? You're free. You're free to be about the Father's business. You're free to care and love for others, think of others better than yourself. You're free. You're free from not having to finagle your way through life, justify yourself. It frees you. So the person with a superiority complex who thinks, who always thinks of themselves in grandiose, prideful context, the gospel brings that ego down to the dirt and says, you'll never add up. It's Jesus who adds up. And for the person who has an inferiority complex, who is equally self-centered, but always thinks about themselves as maybe um, just negatively a victim, self-condemnation, self-hate, the gospel lifts that person up to the heavens and says, you matter because of what Jesus did. In all circumstances, though, the gospel ultimately will direct your gaze away from yourself and onto the sufficiency of Christ. And if you remember anything, this is the source of Paul's courage. Are you starting to see it? This is the source. It's not that Paul was fearless. It's not that he was so confident. He's human. It's that Paul's eyes are not on himself. And you see it all throughout his writings. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing the right thing in the face of fear. To get philosophical, if you had no fears, you wouldn't need courage. So courage is not working yourself up, your confidence up, so that you can overcome fear. In fact, fear as an emotion is helpful, right? Uh, it, it prevents you from doing something stupid, often. Uh, being overconfident. But what we're really talking about is this idea of self-forgetfulness. Maybe when I'm 99, I'll understand what that means. <laughs> I'm, st I'm still trying to figure out what that means. But self-forgetfulness, the way of courage is not marked with intense self-awareness or self-confidence. But actually, the most courageous people are typically the most self-forgetful people. Right, The person that runs into the building to save the burning building to save the baby one runs out. He's asked, what were you thinking? I wasn't. He wasn't doing the math of the beams and the temperature increase. And if I could get into this air pocket, possibly I'll be. He was just going. She was just going. She was, he or she was self-forgetful. There was something more important. So when you're satisfied in God, you're free to not think of yourself all the time. Being strong and courageous is predicated on keeping our eyes off ourselves. Courage even unto death. 
This is why Paul was able to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. For a Christian, death is really the beginning in a lot of senses, right? It inaugurates eternity. But the perception from a non-believer, the perception of death is what? That's the end. I cease to exist. It's over. A Christian looks at the same thing and realizes that the worst thing that can happen to me is the best thing that can happen to me. Poet George Herbert, he said this, Death used to be an executioner. Now, because of the resurrection, he's just a gardener. You don't bury Christians, you plant them. Our bodies don't become rotting corpses, but they become, they, they become germinated seeds planted that bloom forever. So we have to see here that what drives the believer in all things must continue to be the gospel. The gospel is not a gateway in which we walked through when we were saved. It's the lens in which we see every single thing. If you only see the gospel as a truth to understand rather than a beautiful mystery enacted, you will, I will miss what God is doing this side of heaven. And for us here in McKinney, that's kind, of, that's kind of a thing for us. If I were to go around the square and ask, you know, what's the gospel to a lot of people or what did Jesus do? They'd say, you know, they'd probably tell you about the atonement. If I were to ask you, you'd probably tell me about the atonement. Jesus died because I'm a sinner. But would you be able to, and can you articulate the living? What the gospel enables you to do? What it empowers you to do? What it transforms you? into can you explain that can you can you look back on your life and say these are these experiences and and i know many of you can but i want to get at that the gospel a mystery enacted so back to the narrative the crowd is hushed paul is speaking everyone's native language paul says brothers fathers let me give you a defense and he tells them of how Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the road to Damascus. I promised no one that I would do Damascus jokes, Damascus jokes, so I just want to say that I'm not doing that joke. So he, Jesus kicks him off the, his feet. He lands. It's a blinding light. It's this crazy, wild scene where he has a conversation then with Jesus, and it's, and it's wild, and Paul is trying to give the Jews some context here. Paul wasn't smoking something he wasn't tripping he was actually on a trip to imprison jesus's followers so he's trying to give them context for this vision he had of jesus where jesus shows up and basically arrests his life and says you're mine i'm going to show you a new way a better way So Paul is basically telling these Jews, I'm, I'm actually a better Jew than you. That's what his testimony is kind of saying. I, I, I did the Jewish thing better than you. And this is his list. He says he studied under uh, Gamaliel, who was the leader of the Sanhedrin. Acts 5.34 says this, that Gamaliel um, was a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. In other words, 
Um, if you were Catholic and you were trying to prove your Catholicism, this is like you saying, I studied under the Pope, you know? It's like top dog, top teacher, fully respected. He brings up Ananias in verse 12, and this is how he describes Ananias. Ananias was a devout man according to the law, and he was well spoken of by all the Jews. In other words, Paul is saying, God sent me someone like you to give me his message. And the crowd is still silent. The crowd that wanted to kill him, that wanted to stone him, bash his head in, is still silent. And you can kind of imagine Paul going, you know, this might work. In his head. He's probably smarter than that, but... Finally, Paul um, shares something most explicitly. And he says, I even oversaw the execution of Stephen. So what he's saying there to these Jews is that I stood as Stephen, blow after blow, rock after rock, was smashing and disfiguring his head and face until he bled out, became unconscious, and died. And Paul says, I stood there and approved this. This is the politician saying, I approved this message. I approved it. I was responsible. I was the, I was the responsible one, and I was for it. And then Paul refers to a conversation he had with Jesus in a vision when he's in the temple. And he's being instructed to leave Jerusalem because Jesus says, they won't accept your testimony about me. And Paul uh, argues with him, which is funny. Paul's like, Jesus, no, 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 no. I'm a Jew of Jews. These are my, these are my folk. This is my crew. Like, they get me. And Jesus is like, No. I'm actually going to send you to the Gentiles. And when Paul says this, the crowd loses it. Because he said something that fits their narrative of him. But Paul loses it. They were triggered, if you will. And here we ultimately see the cowardice of the crowd. We ultimately see their insecurity. The crowd had already labeled Paul... And he had just said something that fit right into their label, their narrative. And they were missing what he was saying. They were missing it. We often do this. And we don't even know it. Because of our own insecurities, we'll quickly believe the simplest. We'll believe the most popular explanation of something and someone. And what does it do? It like gives you a sense of power. When you, when you can look at someone or a situation and say, yeah, I understand that. This is who they are. What does that do for you? That's like a prideful bomb. It's like, I'm elevated in that scenario. When you put a label on somebody, it's a sense of power, right? You experience... Um, a sense of therapeutic 
power. But what you actually are doing is you're dehumanizing someone. You're taking a complex person or a complex situation and boiling it down to probably what it's not. And don't you see this? I mean, I think this is like, this is the language of our culture right now. Our culture is constantly communicating in this way. We flatten people. We don't see with grace. This type of reductionist communication style is not the way of Jesus. Reducing people, making people understandable is not the way of Jesus. I want to read uh, Henry now and Uh, which I quote him almost every time I speak. He's just that smart. Um, Actually, Audrey showed me this quote earlier. It's really, really great. Um, The temptation to label people with easy characterizations is great since it gives us the illusion of understanding. Not all psychiatric labels such as neurotic, psychopathic, or schizophrenic, but also... Religious labels, such as unbeliever, pagan, sinner, progressive, conservative, liberal, or orthodox, can give us a false sense of understanding. These labels explain more about our own insecurities than about the real nature of our neighbor. Our great task is to prevent our fears from boxing our fellow human beings into characterizations and to see them as persons man what if we could be a group of people that sees sees other people as persons animated by the gospel empowered by the gospel but we could see people as people not obstacles not a a problem to be solved But we look instead, when we see people, see situations, we look for the creativity of God rather than critiquing the cracks of humanity in them. Which is so much easier. It's so much easier to be a critic. I'm guilty. It's just easier. You can sit back and pontificate. You don't have to get involved. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus got involved. That, my friends, is a compelling witness to the world if a people interacts with each other like that in fact that's what jesus said right jesus said how you love one another is how the watching world will know that you're my disciples in other words he's saying how you see one another that you see people as the imago dei the image of god you don't try to reduce them down to an understandable thing but you see the complexities, you see the pain, you see the brokenness. It's not ignoring that, but you, you see them through the lens of grace. The crowd was not capable of this, but this is the way of Jesus. The gospel frees us from having to view people as a threat. When you view someone as a threat, it's very tempting to reduce them down to something understandable. Because of Jesus, though, you and I can have the courage of Paul in this moment. 
and not to write the crowd off, not to be fearful of the crowd, but to face it with courage. We can have the courage of Paul rather than the cowardice or the insecurity of the crowd. We can possess empathy rather than insecurity. That's the way of Jesus. He gives us empathy. But unfortunately, the crowd doesn't get it. And they fulfill Isaiah 6, which is quoted at the end of Acts. If you've read the book of Acts, you get to the very end, and Isaiah 6 is there waiting on you as a summary. And what does Isaiah 6? In in summary, it says this, they'll hear, but they'll never understand. They'll see, but they'll never perceive. If they'd turn, I would heal them. Again, the heart of God. So the tribune... Probably pretty disconnected from Paul, what Paul was talking about. He probably didn't even speak Aramaic. Maybe he had a loose understanding of it, but was like, all right, this isn't working. The crowd went wild. They're thrashing again. So we're just going to take this guy in and we're going to beat him. And, and maybe the truth will come out. Maybe he is the Egyptian. You know, who knows what this guy's thinking? So he brings Paul into the, the barracks and he's going to have him tortured. And it's tortured, tortured, tortured. Not like a spanking or something. I mean, it's like whip. It's like rip the flesh off your back kind of situation. And it says they stretch him out, which is kind of funny that Paul let it get to this because Paul finally plays a trump card. But, but he, they stretch him out and you, and you can kind of picture it. He's like laying there and he looks back and he's like, are you sure you want to do that? It's like, he's, he hasn't even said this, which is so funny. Um, but he's, he says, are you sure you want to do that? I'm a Roman citizen. Roman citizens, citizens had um, much higher rights and respect than the Jews, than any, any um, region they, the Rome, that Rome was occupying. And it's totally illegal to bind and torture a Roman citizen before a trial. And the tribune's like freaked out. Okay, we need to not do this. Because he could be prosecuted and have the same fate even. So it's a really big deal. And this begins our, Paul's final journey to Rome. This moment here. Where it's acknowledged that he's a Roman citizen. This sends him all the way up the, the line of trial and questioning. So I want us to see this. I want, to see, I want us to see that Christ pursued Paul. That's the road to Damascus story. It's the gospel. Jesus comes to us. I want us to see that Christ is pursuing you. That's why you're here this morning. You might have other motives of being here, but the reason you're here eternally is because Jesus of Nazareth is pursuing you. He's been chasing you the whole time. His heart is a heart that pursues his kids And he's brought you here so that you hear that he loves you. In your ignorance, in in the misuse of your body, in your confusion, he loves you. He's calling you. He's calling you. He's inviting you to a better way. Jesus is deeply moved by your mess. And he's willing to get really involved. He is not a God who stands up high 
on high and looks down and pities us. But he's a God that gets down on the ground and in the dirt with us and pulls us up. When you submit to Jesus, you become part of his family. The Bible says you become the body of Christ with him as the head. You become, I become the body of Christ. So I want to highlight as one, this is the last thought. What does Jesus say to Paul on the road to Damascus? Or to Saul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the believers? He says, why are you persecuting me? Saul was not persecuting Jesus. Saul was persecuting Jesus' followers. But if we're really actually the body of Christ, you see why Jesus would have said that? Just as we protect our body and nourish it, so does Christ to us and for us, as if it's his own flesh and blood. As he heals you from sin, he's healing his body. So when you hesitate to bring your sin to him, when you say, I just need to let a little bit more time pass, when you hesitate to bring your narcissism or your sexuality, your rage, your laziness, when you hesitate and say, I just need to clean up, just remember this, because you, if you are a believer in him, if you're submitting to him, because you are within the church, you are his body. And he finds more joy in forgiving you and healing you than you do in receiving it. For his love for you is scandalously deep and hard to understand. His heart for you is unfathomable. There is literally no darkness in you that he can't completely blow away by his miraculous light, by the blood of the cross. And he's pursuing you. That's why you're here. Whether you choose to believe it or not is a whole nother thing, but you are here because Christ loves you. His heart is for you. His heart bleeds for you because when you're his, you're his forever. You're his body. Isn't that good news? So that's what we get to see here is that Jesus pursues us. He was pursuing the Jews even though they were hard-hearted and couldn't hear. Um, he runs after you. So let the gospel take root beyond the theology of atonement. Let the implications of the gospel come alive in your heart and in your life. It's so much more than just a truth, even though it is truth. It's a way of living. Isn't that good news? He frees you from yourself. You just be for other people, even before him, because... His opinion is the only one that really matters in, in the end anyway. Let's pray. We need your help, God. 
we're often actually just like the, the crowd. Coward, cowardly, insecure. Preserving our way of living, our customs. And we miss you because of it. We miss your glory. We miss your power being expressed. We miss the... We miss being a witness of your power working within our weakness. Making us more like you. So God, I pray that you just let us lay down that stuff. And just constantly be laying down um, that stuff. And let the gospel just animate our life in every way. Not just in our thinking, but in our doing and our being in our emotions. Man, we just cling to you this morning. It's incredible how you pursue us. Man, I love you, Jesus. I love what you do. I love who you are. And because of your love for me, because of your love for us, we get to love other people totally different. We get to see people, even our enemies, we get to love them. Like, because you free us. We don't have to self-protect so much. You free us to love our enemies. What a crazy thought. Help us see this. Help us perceive. Holy Spirit, do your work and, 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 and allow our eyes to see, our, our ears to hear. Everything that you're doing. We want to know. We want to be a part we don't want to miss out. So God, I pray that as we go this week, that you would crystallize some of this stuff in our heart. I pray that the gospel would make more sense to us this week than it ever has before. It would have more implications for us today and this week and for the rest of our lives more than ever before. We seal all of this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.